Last week, <clears throat> we began looking at this shepherd king and uh, how this unique, uh, the, the, the unique way that Jesus presents this thing through the first six verses in John chapter 10, he gives an illustration and he basically outlines there that he is a shepherd king, that he is essentially through the first 21 verses, which we looked at last week, he, he outlines that he's the shepherd king. He's the true king of Israel. He is the one with whom people have to do. We saw there, uh, as we kind of broke it down, there's three sections. The first 21 verses being a continuation of John chapter 9, where uh, Jesus had gone the day after, or the days following the Feast of Tabernacles and had this guy wash with mud that he made out of spit and go down and wash in the pool of Siloam and he received his sight. And, uh, and remembering what a remarkable thing that would have been for that guy because he had never even seen his parents. He'd never seen these people whose voices he knew so well. He, he'd never had experienced any of these physical places that he only knew by touch. And yet the religious leaders were just incensed because Jesus healed the guy on the Sabbath. And Jesus did it on purpose. And so we, it, there's a whole dialogue there that we're not going to go back into again. But we saw that this first 21 verses of chapter 10 is an extension of that where Jesus comes now as these guys had uh, essentially excommunicated this guy. Uh, Jesus comes and he says, do you believe in the Son of God? And the guy says, well, who, who is that? And he said, it's me. And, and the guy worships. He definitely, uh, by faith, has come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And the people are, again, the religious leaders, are, they're incensed. They, they're always cranked up about him. But uh, it follows into John chapter 10. Remember, we've looked at since chapter 8, which is where this all started, when he was at the Feast of Tabernacles. He stood up in the middle of the feast and said, drink the water that I give you. And uh, in this solemn procession, when it was dead silent, I mean, he yells this out. Uh, and, and that he was in constant conflict with religious leaders because he had totally challenged their whole gig. They couldn't stand this guy. They wanted to kill him. And it says, I mean, we're told very early in the Gospel of John that they want to kill him. They do not want him around. But the best they can come up with are these lame reasons why they don't want him around, which is like you healed the guy on the Sabbath. And well, you know, you didn't do this this way and you don't do that that way. Well, after all, you have a demon. Well, you're a Samaritan. Well, you know this. And, the, and they just keep on giving these really shallow, pretty much lame excuses for why they don't like him. And he doesn't, he's not deterred by that. He simply continues to present truth to them. Well, we get into chapter 10 and uh, continuation of that. The conflict continues. And then he lays out some things. We'll get into them as we go through the, this morning, to, uh, through the verse, first 21 verses. And it ends with them essentially saying they want to kill him again. And, and, they, they, and we'll look at it again this morning, uh, ending with uh, they pick up rocks and they're going to stone him again, it says. Uh, so uh, this is a very hectic scene in Jesus's life. The opposition had grown and grown and grown. Uh, we're going to look at the end of this period of time because where we're going to pick up this morning is actually going fast forward three months. 
uh, to the Feast of Dedications, where we talked about last week, the, uh, back during the Maccabean period, that 400 years bef- between the two testaments, between from when Malachi stopped prophesying and when John the Baptist started, there were 400 years where God essentially got very quiet. And during that time, this bad dude, Antiochus Epiphanes, came in, and uh, he, he was a horrible, horrible anti-Semitic person. He hated the Jews, and he committed the abomination of desolation there in the temple, and then the Maccabees revolted, and, and they took back Jerusalem, they took back the temple, and they rededicated it, and that's what this feast is about. And so now it's a winter feast, it's winter time in Jerusalem, and the scene shifts here in the middle of John chapter 10. Interesting, the first six verses, uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time where we were last week, uh, but just to to tag some bases that we didn't have time to tag last week, and, and also to bring some things out. Uh, we look at this first six verses, it says that it was an illustration that Jesus gave the religious leaders and that they didn't understand it. Why didn't they understand it? Because it tells us in John chapter 9 that they were blind. And he said, you know, because you say that you see, your sin remains. Because he came to give sight, spiritual sight to us so that we would see, not with our eyes, but to see him in a spiritual sense. Uh, yeah, is this metaphysical? Absolutely, it's beyond the physical, and that's what it means. Is this something that's miraculous? Absolutely. If you understand God's word, it's because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, and you can't understand it. Uh, Paul says, and I, I mentioned it before in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that you have the ability to discern both sides, the physical, the temporal realm, and the spiritual realm. Why? Because God has given you ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that understands. These guys didn't have this. Uh, see some interesting things in, in the, the wording of how this unpacks in this chapter here. Uh, but we saw that this illustration was that he was comparing the sheepfold to Israel. Uh, and and this, he was illustrating and saying that there was this sheepfold, and, and that's Israel, and he compared the shepherd to Israel's true ruler. Uh, that's why we have called him in this series, this brief series, uh, the Shepherd King, because he is essentially telling these guys, you are not the true rulers of Israel. You are false authorities. And he was the true one. Uh, and, and we'll get into that as we go. But he, he's also comparing the robbers and the thieves to these false shepherds, the Jewish rulers. And so when they don't understand it, he begins to now, in verse 7, he unpacks it and starts to give him a sort of a rundown on what's going on. Uh, I'm going to look at seven points of contrast here in the first 21 verses, and we'll just draw some things out as we go. I, I didn't have time to do this last week, so uh, we're going to just jump into it here. The first is he contrasts a shepherd, a true shepherd, with a thief and a robber. Uh, he says, you know, I am the good shepherd, uh, but you guys, you, you don't come in through the door. You climb up another way, and you present yourselves as the rulers. You have this authority. You have this dictatorial type of uh, authority that they had. They looked down on the people, though. They never got with the people. They separated themselves from, and they were so arrogant in their approach. He's saying, no, you're not the real rulers. You might look like it. 
but uh, you're not. You're a thief and a robber. Uh, he, the second is, he says, I enter by the door. You go some other way. Uh, again, a contrast. There's the door, and then there's the other way. Any other way other than the door to the sheepfold is not the right way. It, again, it doesn't matter what it looks like. What matters is where is your heart? You know, in the New Testament, guys, it always comes down to matters of the heart. I love to look at the Old Testament is that God painted with a big brush. I used to do billboard pictorials. I was a pictorial artist for years, and I used great big brushes because they're great big. Some of them were 50-foot-long paintings. And yet, then I started trying to do fine art, and I would do these little detailed brushes, and boy, that was a hard transition. But God paints with a big brush in the Old Testament, and he uses this detail brush in the New Testament. Uh, and maybe that just makes more sense to me because I've been a painter, but uh, it, he just, it, it's about the heart. The externals that are, you see all over the place in the Old Testament are a shadow and a type and a parable that point directly to a fulfillment that's personal in the New Testament. Wonderful patterns that you see as you take a, a step back and you look at God's word as a whole, you see how these things come out. So he says, you guys are you're ungodly leaders. Uh, you excommunicated the guy that was born blind. They avoided the proper entry into the kingdom of God. And that was why Jesus went. The first thing he did when he found out this guy got axed, Jesus tracks him down and essentially sees to it that salvation comes to him. Because he knew that all he had been, I mean, really, at the end of the day, yeah, he got excommunicated, and that was a big deal. We talked about that. I mean, you lost your job, you lost your family, you lost, I mean, your family would actually mourn over you like you were dead, but you're not. I mean, there was a whole deal that they went through. But essentially, Jesus knew that that was all a sham. And so the first thing that Jesus does is he offers him the right entry into the kingdom of God, because he knows the worst that could happen with this guy, he got thrown out of their club. But he had the true way. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd, he says. The third is his sheep hear his voice and he leads them. Contrasted to that, he says, they won't hear a, sh a stranger and they'll run. Interesting. So we have the good shepherd who the sheep hear his voice. They follow him. He leads them, it says. But they say that they will run from a stranger. They don't recognize the voice of a stranger. We talked about that with uh, uh, Karen and Doug were here last week. Uh, it was, I, I was laughing with her on the phone with, uh, talking to Karen because I had a couple of questions about sheep and shepherds and shep sheepfolds. I said, it's a little daunting being a pastor teaching on sheep and sheepfolds with a couple of shepherds in our congregation. <laughs> but <laughs> I said, I want to get this right. She said, well, we'll be easy on you. And I said, oh, that's great. They're very fun. <laughs> But, but um, they don't hear the voice of a stranger. They literally don't. They will not follow. Sheep are very timid. Uh, she was explaining. She said, they're prey animals, and they look at you as either you're going to give me food or you're going to kill me, is essentially what I was getting out of our conversation. I mean, there's not a lot in between. They're not, you know, not going to be doing calculus, but they're not stupid either. And so they won't follow a stranger, and, and they will flee. The fourth thing we look at here is in verse 10. He says, the thief doesn't come except to steal and to kill and destroy. Contrasted to that, I've come that they might have life. And not just have life, but have an abundant life. 
this whole series of contrasts just came leaping out as I was studying this passage. I thought, you know, I've just got to get into this a bit. So the contrast here is the thief. It implies deception and trickery. A robber implies violence and destruction. These take away life. Jesus gives life, and he gives it abundantly. The fifth thing we see here from verse 11, he says the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In verse 12, he says the hireling flees when he sees the wolf coming. One of the core principles, and I don't use fundamental because I don't like that word. I don't like being called a fundamentalist. I know the world comes up with labels. No, I'm a Christian. But, and yeah, anyway, oh, I could rabbit trail on that big time, but I'm not gonna, (laughs) and I don't have time. And yeah, we are fundamentalists in that sense, but I just, again, all right, see, I'm going. Stop it, John. (laughs) Seriously, though, it's it's about being a Christian. It's about being a follower of Christ. And you can keep all the labels on, and and there are some that are really good to have and all, but uh, I guess the reason I go on that one is because uh, so often that word is used with somebody kind of stroking their chin and with their eyebrow raised, and I just don't think it's fair to lump people into a category. You're a believer or you're not. And that's really what I think God's perspective is. So anyway, uh, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The hireling flees when he sees a wolf coming. He's not talking about somebody that's getting paid necessarily, but he's talking about as somebody that that's just as important as it gets. I remember my first business, I, uh, I think I was 22 years old, and I had some guys working for me. I had this one guy, I mean, his lunch pail was at the door at 425, got off at 430, and it's like, you didn't have a chance to say goodbye to this guy. He was lightning out the door. Another guy was really invested in his job, and if he was in the middle of a project, he would just complete it. And, and I mean, he was just all in and I I used to marvel at the difference between these guys and I'm not making an indictment about that but but here he's talking about a hireling he's saying you know it's a job he's going to do just what it takes to get the job done doesn't really matter if it's sloppy doesn't really matter if it's not done well he's just going to get the job done that's a hireling somebody that's in it for himself I want my paycheck I'm not giving any more than I need to, and that's it. That's sort of the sense that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about a hireling. And and he he contrasts that with the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep. And a a core principle in the body of Christ is being others-centered. I mean, the Bible tells us, husbands, love your wives, esteem your wife as more important than yourself. Esteem your, hu- your husband as more important than yourself. When relationships are built on that, because Jesus modeled that for us, servant-heartedness, other-centeredness, our lives begin to work. Where is there room? I mean, I've, I've, I heard, I was at a pastor's conference one time years ago, and the guy that was leading the conference was teaching out of Ephesians, you know, about, you know, um, you know, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, and, and husbands love your wives and all that. And his wife got up at one point. And she said, I told him, I'll start loving him like Jesus loves the church as soon as he starts, uh, um, or I'll start submitting to him as soon as he starts loving me as Jesus loves the church. And I just laughed. And she was joking, of course, but again, these principles are for us. 
this other-centeredness. He, he uses this contrast here, the good shepherd giving his life for the sheep, and that's not just giving his life through death, which he did, but it's giving his life for his church. That's what he does. He still does. It's a sacrificial life. It's one that says, you know, I'm putting your needs, your interest, your well-being, your good above my own. And that's a core principle that the kingdom of God runs on. Uh, something that we see very clearly modeled in the life of Christ and something that is transferred to us as we study through the epistles and so on. We see that this, this servant-heartedness, this other-centeredness comes through all over the place. Usually when things don't work in my life, it's because I'm being selfish and uh, I'm being self-centered, self-seeking. And um, yeah, as Forrest Gump said, that's all I've got to say about that. The sixth thing is the shepherd protects and gathers and the wolf scatters. And yeah, I, I remember when I first studied this, I remember thinking, you know, it's like, why does it say the wolf eats the sheep? No, it says he scatters the sheep. Because that's what he does before he dines. He can't get you when you're safely in the fold, he, when you're safely with the other sheep. The wolf's design is to get sheep out and away from the rest of the flock. Then he can do his work. And so the very first strategy that comes in, and we see this happen in the body of Christ, guys, is that, that wolves can come in. And when you start seeing bodies littering the, the, the way out there, it's time to pay attention. There are such things as wolves in sheep's clothing, and they do come. I've often said that it, when Satan can't prevail against the church, he joins it. And, and, and it's, it's a tough thing at times because uh, we're to discern the spirits, to see if they're from God, but we're also not to, to think it's upon us to separate the sheep from the goats. He says, you be very careful about that. I will do that on the threshing floor of eternity. However, part of what a shepherd does is protect the flock. That's why he had a sling. <laughs> and uh, if the sheep was wandering, he would just bounce that rock, uh, or that, the, the stone out of a sling off of a rock next to the sheep, say he's wandering off, and, and it would get that sheep's attention and get him back into the fold. He would use it if there were wolves coming in. He had that for defense or for offense to defend the sheep. Uh, but he also had, he says, your rod and your staff. So there's a rod that he had. He had the staff that he would pull the sheep in and sort of control them. But he also had a rod. And that rod was used for hand-to-hand -hand combat with wild animals. <laughs> and, yeah, the great parallels there. I, I, I'm, don't worry, I don't carry a rod. But the point is, the shepherd had responsibility. And this guy... The, the ones that he was talking about, uh, being wolfish, they caused the sheep to scatter, and the shepherd would gather. The seventh, or the, yeah, the, the seventh thing here uh, is, is division. We saw in verses 19 and 20 that there was a division that arose among the people. And they said, well, he has a demon. He's insane. Uh, others said, well, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? 
So we see here that the people were divided. There were people, and there were always people in the crowd. There were people that were for, and there were people that were against. And the people that were against were trying to incite the others that were for to become against. And the people that were, and it just, it, these guys, you, I, you know how Jews like to argue. And I'm not trying to be, you know, stereotypical here, but I mean, Jewish people can get very, very heated up and they're very highly charged with their opinions. And these guys knew how to tangle it and they tangled a lot between themselves. You see there, through the Gospels, there are divisions that were arising all the time. Because why? Because Jesus divides people. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. What does a sword do? It slices, it divides. He forces a decision. We talked about that at length uh, in a couple of studies. Uh, these guys either end up uh, in rejection and blaspheming or they end up worshiping. And, and really, there is no middle ground. And so these contrasts, we see these contrasts coming through in this chapter. Um, and, and essentially, it's what I mentioned last week as we were closing. It's what doors do. You're either on one side of the door or you're on the other side of the door. He's the door to the sheep. If you're a sheep, you're going to go through that door. If you're not, you don't want to go in there. Why do you want to go in there? And, and I mean, he causes people to fall on one side or the other. So today, uh, as we get into the text here, we're going to start in John 20, 10, 22. Uh, and now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Uh, Jerusalem in the winter can be just as cold as anywhere else. It can be as cold as here. I was in Jerusalem one time uh, in a blizzard. Shut down the city. <laughs> and shut down my tour, too. But um, I was with a group of pastors. We were studying the life of David uh, there in Israel. And, and uh, we got off to a slow start because the day after our plane landed, we were holed up at a kibbutz because we couldn't go anywhere. I mean, this could be a really cold place. And so it says here that, that he's at the Feast of Dedication. Uh, again, I mentioned that it's the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. Hanukkah literally means dedication. That's what Hanukkah today is. And it wasn't, it's a newer feast. It, like I said, it came out of the Maccabean period. It wasn't one of the seven, you know, feasts that God had foreordained in the Old Testament. It came later. It was an eight-day feast, and it wasn't mandatory. And so, so John's real clear. He says that the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, because you weren't required to go. It wasn't mandatory for the people to go to this one. So um, John tells us Jerusalem, verse 23, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now this would be Jesus' last visit to Jerusalem before he presented himself to Israel uh, as Messiah in just a few months. Now this, like I said, this is about three months after the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a fall feast, and now it's winter. And so we know that he went to the cross in the spring the spring feast, Passover, was when he became the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so this is about halfway between the two. Uh, we knew that he was about six months out at Tabernacles, and now he's three months out, three months from the cross. This is nearing the end of his ministry. We'll see that a huge chunk of the Gospel of John is the last week of his life. And so uh, it's, it says here that he's at Solomon's porch, and, and I, as I think about it, it says he's walking in the temple just went to go for a walk. And I thought, you know, what would it have been like uh, for Jesus to walk through? I mean, would he be reflecting? He knew that his hour was coming. He knew that that day was looming closer and closer all the time. Uh, I think about Hebrews 12 where it says, for the joy that was set before him, 
he endured the cross, despising the shame. And when he had finished making atonement for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I wonder if he could look down through and see the things that were before him. Yes, he did not want physically to go to the cross. As a man, he, he, we see in the garden, not going to go into that, but it was a tough deal that it was ahead of him. And yet he's walking here through the temple. Uh, I want to take a minute, you know, one of the things I like to do is identify geographical places because I, I believe it really helps us to grasp that these are real events in real places that really took place. Uh, and so in Acts chapter 3, we see this uh, Solomon's porch coming out, and that's what I want to bring out here. In Acts chapter 3, and verses 1 and 2, it says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. It would be about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a certain lame, a man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. And going down to verse 10 in, in Acts chapter 3, it says, you know, so what happens is they see this guy, he's, he's born lame, and, and he is begging alms, and, and Peter says, you know, gold and silver have I none, but this I do have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise, be healed. And he reaches down, he grabs this guy, and he pulls him up, and it says as he pulled him up, that his feet and his legs were strengthened, and that he was, he was actually put on his feet. Uh, so, Dropping down to verse 10, it says, They knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch which is called Solomon's, same place where Jesus is here in John chapter 10, greatly amazed. So, you'll see in this first slide, oh, you already got it up, all right, um, in this first slide, you'll see uh, there's Solomon's porch in the red letters there. The, the temple mount was lined with colonnades. They were these large areas. There would be several columns deep where the people could go and literally walk the circumference of the temple, with exception to a small area by the Fortress Antonia, which is underneath the word complex. But um, they could walk. This was to give them a way to go to the temple in inclement weather. And that would be the case. It's wintertime. So Jesus isn't walking out in the open in the court of the Gentiles. He's still in the court of the Gentiles because this Solomon's porch was the, the eastern side of the temple mount under the columns. So he's undercover. Now, it talks about this beautiful gate. Uh, and there's, there's some speculation on these, okay, guys? I mean... Uh, going with really the preponderance of the evidence. We're kind of getting outside of what the Bible says as far as it doesn't give us definite locations, but this is what makes the most sense. The beautiful gate is also the golden gate or the eastern gate of the Temple Mount, and it exists today. Uh, well, actually, the, the, uh, a later rendition of it exists today that uh, was built later on, but uh, this beautiful gate would be the eastern gate of the, the city. And, and so... Peter and uh, John are walking up to the temple. They're coming from probably the Mount of Olives because to the, the right of where this temple mount is is the Kidron Valley, and just up from the bottom of the valley is, is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's on the Mount of Olives, but it's just barely on the Mount of Olives. It is at the very base of the mount. And we know that Jesus frequently at the feasts, they didn't have, you know, cell phones that they could say, hey, meet me here, meet me there. They had, they had prearranged meeting places, and he always met his guys 
at the Garden of Gethsemane. So it would make sense that he would be coming through the eastern gate here, uh, the beautiful gate. Next slide, please. All right, this is looking from the east, like if you were standing up on the Mount of Olives looking down at the Temple Mount, the beautiful gate, the eastern gate would be there, and Solomon's porch or portico would actually be a, a good rendering of that word, is this whole line of the eastern side of the Temple Mount. So Jesus has come, it's wintertime, he's come through the beautiful gate, the eastern gate, and he's walking in Solomon's porch. That's why it, you know, it, I want you to have a, a good visual of this. Now we'll look at what the beautiful or eastern or golden gate looks like today, this last slide. It's been walled up. It was walled up in 1540 by the Muslims, by uh, an Arab uh, guy that uh, he thought, because the Jews have traditionally looked at this golden gate as the gate that Messiah would come through when he came into Jerusalem. It's still widely thought that that's how it would happen. I mean, there's a passage in Ezekiel 46 that says, now when the prince makes a voluntary burnt offering or voluntary peace offering to the Lord, the gate that faces toward the east shall be opened for him. So, and and in Ezekiel 46, it's talking about Ezekiel's temple, which has not yet been built. There is a temple in prophecy that's prefigured, and it's talking about the prince. Now, we know in the book of Daniel that Jesus is identified as the prince. Uh, here in, in Ezekiel, we could come to the same conclusion. Again, uh, we're looking at the prophetic record, and I just don't have time to go into it in detail. But know that this is a significant thing. The Muslims shut this because they thought that it would keep Messiah from entering through that gate. Then they, that wasn't enough. If you'll notice here, they put a, a, they put a graveyard in front of it because they know that to a Jew, anything that has to do with death is utterly defiled. So they're like, oh, we're going to keep that Jewish Messiah from going in there. And, and I just look at that and I just, I, I marvel at spiritual blindness anyway. We've been talking about that. And it truly is an aspect of spiritual blindness that's driven this whole thing being walled up and, and, you know, put a graveyard in front of it, do the whole deal. So that should hopefully give you a little bit of a point of reference for where Jesus was at in the temple when these things began to take place here at the Feast of Dedications or, or during Hanukkah. In verse 24, it says that the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. I'm tempted to do this with a British accent. <laughs> I'm sorry. Have you ever noticed in the movies, they, they, always, you know, they, they always speak in a, a British accent. You know, and they said, hey, how long will you keep us in doubt? You know, that kind of a deal uh, for dramatic effect. But it, they're not speaking British. Believe me. But the point is, they hemmed him in. They came and they surrounded him, right? The, the, the leaders come, they say, hey, that Jesus, that guy from Nazareth is down there. And, and a group of them go, and they actually literally surround this guy. And they hem him in, thinking that, well, you're going to keep him from getting away. They haven't had very good success with that all along, but they're going to give it another shot. They said, how long do you keep us in doubt? As though Jesus was the one that was holding out on them. He had demonstrated over and over and over again who he was by the works he did. And we'll look at that because that's exactly where Jesus goes. Uh, and, and I have to say that there was probably a mixed crowd here. There usually was. There were people in the, in the leadership of Israel, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Nicodemus, people who had come to faith, who probably were very secretive about it still at this point, but there were those that were making defense, like the people that said, you know, a, a, a blind 
him and a guy that was born blind, you can't do that by the power of a demon. You, you know, that just doesn't make any sense. And so there were guys that were always try, trying to put forth a voice of reason in these dialogues that Jesus was having with these religious leaders. So there were probably some sincere people in the crowds. Uh, think about John the pa Baptist. I mean, he had doubts himself. Uh, he said, are you the one or do we look for another? So uh, there usually is a mix. Uh, the thing that I, I look at too, how long will you get, get to keep us in doubt, is spiritual blindness again. Uh, these guys don't see because they can't see. They can't see because they don't want to see. We're told the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving that they wouldn't see. But that doesn't mean the devil made me do it. That means that they cooperated with the God of this world, and that's how that comes about. Spiritual blindness is an amazing thing. As a Christian, when you look at somebody and you think, why on earth can you not get this? I mean, uh, there's times where I just want to slap somebody, and I won't. But it's like, come on, will you just get a hold of this truth? This is so true. My wife's shaking her head back there. <laughs> anyway, it's so true. I mean, it, it can even be frustrating because you're thinking, this is just, I mean, your life is a train wreck, and you need Jesus, and he has the answers, and I want you so much to just step into his kingdom and by faith embrace. And, and they're like, nope. He hasn't revealed himself to me. And that's what these guys are saying. So it's just interesting. And Jesus in verse 25 says, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So, class, what are miracles for? For great TV shows? No. Are they for miracle rallies? No. He says, they bear witness of me. They're attesting miracles. That's what it says in the book of Acts, that he was attested to you by miracles and signs and wonders. And when we separate those two, we end up with a carnival. We really do. And there's too much carnival going on out there when people should be coming into the depths of the knowledge of him who went to the cross because he loved us. And he came to this earth, walked this earth, performed the miracles to validate that he was the one. He'd already shown them. He told them. How? Through his works. Through the things he did. He, you know, there are three times where he made explicit claims. Uh, the Samaritan woman, remember that? He, he was talking to the woman at the well. He said, I'm the one. And, and then to this man born blind, he said, yeah, I am. Use the covenant name for God. Uh, also to Peter in Matthew 16, where, where he said, you know, who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus essentially validated that. Generally, Jesus let people come to their own conclusions about him to see the works. Why? Because the just shall live by faith. He always leaves room for belief, but he always leaves room for unbelief, doesn't he? He always does, because it's an act of my will that, he's, that he is about. He wants for me to choose him. There won't be anybody in heaven who doesn't want to be there. There won't be anybody there that was pre-programmed, and that's just how it is. Oh, boy, holy, holy, holy. I've got to put up with that again. You know, there's not going to be any of that. 
But he wants a people that choose him. Verse 26, he says, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep, as I said to you. This is an interesting verse, guys. We're going to become Calvinists here for a few minutes. Oh, that'll get some people really uncomfortable. Ron's already squirming. No. <laughs> the structure of this, and it, you can't get around it in Greek, is you would believe if you were my sheep. You would believe if you were my sheep. There's a mystery here. And I'm not going to try to steer around. Yeah, on other days we'll be Arminians, I promise. I mean, the, those are the two main deals. If, and if you don't know about that, it's probably a good thing. But um, no, Calvinism says that everything was predestined and, and that's how it is. Uh, you know, that it's, you don't have to worry about evangelizing because God already knows who's his and he already knows who's not and all of that. And I just don't believe that. The Bible does teach that God predestines. And this is a, definitely a predestined looking statement. However, he also teaches, the Bible also teaches that God allows for my will to come into play. And that's Arminianism. It's, it's about man's free will. I believe that both are taught and both are true. Apparent contradictions, apparently in conflict with one another, in human terms maybe, but certainly not in God's. I don't struggle with this a bit, and I invite you not to struggle with it as well. So this, it, it kind of comes down to this. There is something that happens on God's side. It's our responsibility to bring Christ to men. But only God brings men to Christ. Miracles simply don't produce faith. I mentioned before the two most miraculous generations were the generation in Moses' day and the generation in Jesus' day. And they were the two most faithless generations in biblical history. Because miracles don't produce faith. They just don't. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He's saying literally my sheep continually, again, looking at the original, this is in the continuous present tense, okay? He says, my sheep continually hear my voice and I am continually knowing them and they are continually following me. That's how this breaks down. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Yes, it's a continual thing. It's not an event. It's this, this is about a relationship, guys. It's not about an event. Oh, well, I made a profession of Christ at summer camp when I was 15. And live like I want for the rest of the time and that ought to count. No, it doesn't. This is a continual thing. It's a continual relationship. It is a relationship that is built on him speaking to us as much as us speaking to him. It's a, it's a relationship that is about intimacy. And Jesus very clearly brings that out in this passage. Now, he's talking in sheep terms here. Go ahead and go to the next one. Uh, remember last week I showed this slide, the sheepfold. This was a sheepfold. He's, he's talking about my sheep hear my voice and, and that whole illustration that he gave in the first six verses, he's continuing on that three months later with these guys. He's saying, don't you remember we talked about this essentially? This is about sheep. This is about the shepherd. This is about them hearing my voice. They follow me, i.e. they hear you but they don't recognize you and they're not going to follow you. Uh, just as a side note, and, and I've got to pick it up because we're going to run out of time, but 
I think about how many times false leadership has played out. And I mean, and it plays out in families. Uh, I know um, a guy that my daughter uh, uh, had a relationship with was when she was in, in high school, uh, went on to go to prison for uh, sexually molesting his daughter for six years. And I think, you know, that guy, I have some personal opinions about that, I'm not going to go there, but that guy was given the position of being the head in his home. He was given the position of being the protector in his home. He was, whether he's following Christ or not, he has the God-given responsibility to be a covering for his family. And instead of that, to choose to be the one that perpetrates, that, that sows destruction, that, that thief and robber thing we're talking about, and, and you know, it plays out, this plays out in practical terms, guys. Uh, as men of God, we are called to be the covering in our home. We are called to be the priest in our home. And I'm not talking about an Old Testament priest where, you know, I, I get you to God, I get God to you and all that. No, that, that, that stopped with the law when it was terminated at the cross but, because we have direct access. However, I am called to set the tone in my home spiritually. I am called, and I take it very, very, very seriously. And, and, and yeah, you could ask Stacy. I don't always get it right. Sometimes I'm grumpy and all that stuff. So are you. Don't even give me that. But, <laughs> but the point is, it's a relationship. He says in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This is a double negative here in Greek. It says they shall never, ever perish. Actually, it literally translates they shall never, never perish. But that kind of looks like they'll perish. So it's not translated that way. It's not intended that way. But it's a double imperative. It's a double negative in Greek. They shall never, ever perish. He is very emphatic. And, and I mean, if you want to be secure eternally, if you're looking for positions that support that, Jesus himself says, nobody's going to take you out of my hand. Nobody's going to take you out of the Father's hand. He says both here. He says my, in verse 29, my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You ever think about that? The Father and the Son. You, you, nobody can take you out of either of their hands. And I, I picture, you know, walking with one hand with the Father and one hand with the Son. I'm right in between. Nobody's going to get me. Nobody's going to take me away from that. Um, and again, he's telling these guys, uh, he's just laying it on the line to them. He's telling them how it is. He's telling them, he, all of this is to answer their question saying, tell us plainly. And he's telling them about as plainly as he can get here. Uh, and they're saying, be specific, be logical. And he's saying, I've told you, the works I've done and the works that you've seen me do have not been mine but they've all been demonstrations of my union with God. How much more clear can they be? Or could he be with these guys? Uh, he says in verse 30, that wonderful verse, I and my father are one. And the word my was added for translation, but there is still a definite article in, in front of the word father. It's my, I and the father are one. We are one. Now, goofy groups, 
sorry, but that's what I call them. Goofy groups will try to take this and say, well, that doesn't mean that Jesus is God. Well, I don't know what they think, but the guys here, we'll see in a minute, they definitely think he's God because they pick up rocks to throw at him when he says this. But he's not talking about I and the Father are one in unity of purpose and mission. That's what I was taught when I was in the Mormon church. No, it's not that. It's not, they're not one in purpose, not one in mission. They're one in nature. They're God. Jesus is God. Uh, well, I'll get, I'm going to get ahead of myself again. His answer was bigger than they could comprehend, is essentially what it amounts to. He was answering this. This is way beyond Messiah. Uh, he's, he's claiming to be God here. Um, it says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. <sighs> this is getting to be a regular occurrence with these guys, isn't it? Uh, interesting. The other time in John eight fifty eight, when Jesus made this claim, he said, before Abraham was, was born, I am. Remember that? And they took up stones. Uh, in both cases, Jesus' claim was the same. He was saying, he's making a claim to what we call, in theological terms, essential deity. Three persons, one essence, one God. Don't understand it. Don't expect to understand it. I'm finite. He's infinite. These are infinite terms. Try to think about infinite terms as, as a human. And, and you're going to get to a place where smoke will start coming out of your ears. Circuit breakers are going to pop and you're going to have to give up. You have to take it by faith. That's the point. Verse 32, and Jesus answered them, many good works I've shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? <laughs> okay, so you're gonna, you're, you guys just picked up rocks and, and they held on to them, which I think is interesting. It's kind of remarkable. Uh, and, and, but he's chiding them now. He's, this is sort of a playful irony. He's, okay, you know, let's see, I, I healed the guy that was born blind. I remember the pool of Bethesda. I told that guy to take up his pallet and walk. And well, you know, I, um, and, and you know, it, he, it go down the list. It, it, Healed the lame and healed the lepers. And I mean, he's done all this stuff. Well, so, so which one of those things are you going to stone me for? Is, is this question to them. And they answer him saying, for a, a good work, we don't stone you. How noble of them, right? Um, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself to be God. This freaked their heads. This really did. I mean, yeah, yeah that's old vernacular, but they were messed up when he made this claim. They knew what he was claiming. He wasn't claiming this one in purpose and blah, blah, blah. He was claiming to be God. I and the Father are one. How much plainer does it get? They've asked him, tell us who you are. Are you the Messiah? And he lays it out for him. Now, their perception was you're a man making yourself God. And that was enough to, to flip their gourds. But imagine if they knew the truth. You are God who became a man. That would have really messed them up. That, because they were sort of right, but they were really kind of getting it backwards. This is God became a man, not man making himself God. Uh, they weren't denying the deity which he asserted. They understood his claim. They just didn't believe him. Uh, but they understood what he meant. And really, with picking up the rocks, they couldn't harm him. They wouldn't be able to harm him until, as Peter said on the day of Pentecost, he was delivered by the predetermined uh, counsel and foreknowledge of God. Uh, now I'm going to read verses 34 through 36, and we're running short on time, so I'm going to move through this quickly. 
This is uh, a passage that people have struggled with, but there's really not a struggle here when you understand the context. Um, Jesus answered them and said, is, not, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods, lowercase g, gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified or set apart and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? Got to go back into the Old Testament and do some digging on this one. In the Old Testament, God raised up people who were judges. And the word for judges there is Elohim. It's the same word that's translated for God. Uh, it's not frequent, but it is there in a number of places. I'll give you one uh, here in a sec. Uh, they judged different issues in Israel, and they had the power of life and death. Uh, they had vested authority from God. These guys were, uh, they were important people. And, and in the same way that a judge has vested authority in our land, he has the ability to make decisions that are going to impact your life. I remember one time I, I missed a jury summons, and I got subpoenaed by the judge in the little county I lived in in California. And it was like, be there 1145, and you know, I went down there, and I'm like, and he goes, are you John Terry? Yes, sir, I am kind of... <laughs> I think my voice or my mouth dried out when he said that. It was like, oh, I'm in trouble. Is he going to give me, am I going to be in the clink or what? And he goes, you know, we're a small community and we rely on our jury pool. And he gave me this whole deal. And, and I, I had just forgotten about it. I, you know, I wasn't like, I'm not going or anything like that. And I mean, the guy, he got on me and he said, yeah, the next time that I see you here, you miss a jury summons, you're going to do some time. Is that clear, Mr. Terry? Oh, perfectly clear, Your Honor. Yeah, I'm very, very sorry. And you know, and he goes, I know, I know. Yeah, the dog ate it, right? No, you left it on the refrigerator. And I said, No, no, I just forgot. And and so he got all over me. And then it was at that point. It was noon. Like I said, small community. And he said, Bailiff, it's time for us to break for lunch. And he told the sheriff's deputy there, and he pounded the gavel. He said, You know, court's in session until 1 p.m. And as soon as he did that, he took off his robe and he walked over. And he goes, John, how's it going? <laughs> and I said, it's going great, John. How are you? How's your wife? You know, how, how's... <laughs> he was a friend, but he had vested authority. And when he had that robe on, it was hammered down, literally. I mean, he was like, oh, you're going to throw me in jail. Oh, I'm definitely not going to miss another jury summons for the rest of my life, you know, and all of that. But uh, as soon as he took that off, he was back to being a regular Joe. Well, that's sort of the picture here. These judges had vested authority from God, and they had the power to do stuff. Um, a, a good example is in Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6. It says, but if the servant plainly says, it's talking about a servant who has served his time, an indentured slave. Uh, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges, Elohim, and he shall also bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall, be a, shall serve him forever. This is talking about a bond slave, and we use that passage when we talk about bond service. Several other places in the law where the, the judges are brought, and this word Elohim is used. In Psalm 81, uh, I'm going to have to just read the whole psalm because you've got to get this. I, I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here. So excuse my indulgence. We're going to run a little bit long. Uh, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, lowercase g, Elohim. 
This is what Jesus is quoting from. How long will you judge unjustly and, and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. I've given you vested authority, and you're dealing wickedly. That's what he's saying here. This would be poking the Pharisees in the chest as well. He, they had vested authority as Israel's supposed leaders that were dealing wickedly. So there's, there's, there's a sort of a backdoor slam on these guys that most of the time we don't pick up, but that's truly what's going on. He says, I said, you are gods and you're all children of the most high, but you shall die like a man and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, uppercase G, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nation. The word gods refers to magistrates, judges, and other people who hold positions of authority and rule, whether they're corrupt or not. And so Jesus is saying, this is essentially, this is, uh, I'll unpack what he's saying here. He's saying, if God calls corrupt people with authority gods, and I am the one sanctified or set apart, and it doesn't mean he was sanctified, he had to be sanctified like we're sanctified. Don't, don't take that. He's saying, if I'm the one who was set apart by God himself, and you're accusing me of blasphemy by claiming to be the son of God, you're the ones who are supposed to be standing in his place in Israel. And so he's essentially putting it right, he just takes it and he throws it right back on them. A little bit complex, talk to me afterwards, I'll explain it to you if I can better because I'm kind of really trying to run through this. In verse 30, 35, I think is interesting, he says, in the, the scripture cannot be broken. Uh, I like that. I, I mean, the promises of God are sure. The things that he says are gonna come about are gonna come about. When we're studying the book of Revelation beginning tonight, the things that we look at that he has said will come about in the last days, we can look around, guys, and we see, again, the sureness, the scripture cannot be broken. If it's here, you can bank on it. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 37, if I don't do the works of my father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Again, asserting his deity. He appeals to the witness of his works. He's saying, if they're not from God, don't believe me. But if they are, believe that the Father and I are one. All of this was his response to their question in, in verse 24. How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. It doesn't get any plainer than this. But they still won't believe. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And I insert the word, he easily escaped out of their hand because they thought they had him easily surrounded. <laughs> and not so fast. His hour had not yet come. And you know, I started, as I was picturing this, I was picturing these guys are all in a circle around, they've got rocks in their hands. And, and this is probably that evil side of me. I thought, you know, I would have said, go ahead, throw your rocks. And then I would have ducked because they would have thrown them at each other and they probably would have bounced off each other's heads. But... That's just me. Um, verse 40, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, uh, and there he stayed. Um, Bethany beyond the Jordan. Remember John 128, we saw this place is called Bethany. It was probably the place of crossing where Israel had initially crossed into Canaan way back under Joshua's reign. 
yeah, interesting. Uh, not chapter 3, Anon near Salim. That was, uh, John moved at one point. He's talking about, he says, the first place where John was baptizing. So Bethany beyond the, the Jordan, that would be south uh, east of Jerusalem, across on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, verse 41, and many came to him and said, John performed no signs, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. Uh, interesting there. Um, Jesus said, among those born among women, there's not been a greater one than John the Baptist, and he who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John never did any miracles, but they evidently the place was still buzzing. I mean, this is nearly three years later. It's, a, well, it's actually a little over three years later. Uh, and there, he's back in the same spot in this play. These people remembered John. They knew what he had claimed. They knew what he had said. And now Jesus has come back and they're saying, man, he didn't do any miracles. We don't really care about that because everything he said about this Jesus guy is true. Verse 42, and many believed in, in him there. He was being rejected in Jerusalem, but not here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for this brief look in the Gospel of John at uh, Jesus' interaction with these religious leaders. And Lord, deliver us from uh, any aspect of being religious. Lord, we want that relationship. We simply want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. And Father, we yield ourselves afresh to you this morning. We pray that you would speak to us. Bring to our remembrance the things you want us to remember from this morning's uh, uh, Bible study. And, and pray, Father, that you would be glorified in our lives and through us, Lord. As we deal in a, a fallen world, Father, let us not get sucked into that, but simply be sheep that hear your voice and follow you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your love, and we love you uh, so much in return. We just praise you for the grace you pour out on us every day. In Jesus' name, amen.